listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today on the show, we have Colin Roche. Colin is the founder of Orcam Financial Group, a low-fee financial advisory firm, as well as the founder of a popular financial blog, Pragmatic Capitalism. He specializes in macro investing with a focus on fixed income and conservative strategies. Enjoy my conversation with Colin Roche. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question I like to start out with guests just to help frame the conversation is going back to 2008, the global financial crisis. What were you doing and what was going through your mind at the time? Yeah. So gosh, 2008, I was, uh, I was like living a whole different life. I was basically running a stock picking based partnership and what happened was really distinct in 2008 in that I remember when things started to get really hairy in, you know, like the late summer period there and early fall and all the correlations and everything went to one and all the like all the stuff that people thought was safe 
became just really highly correlated with all the stuff that was unsafe, basically. And there was really no place to hide. I mean, treasury bonds were kind of the only thing that performed really well, consistently well throughout the entire financial crisis period. And, you know, for a stock picker, that was a big wake up call because you sort of realize that the macro events during an environment like that, they just dominate everything. And I kind of realized that I had a at least a flawed understanding of macro to some degree. I mean, I had studied macro econ for all through school and through a lot of my career, but I didn't I didn't actually, I think, have a good grasp on the operational aspects of what was going on at a macro level. And 2008 was just that wake up call where I kind of, you know, I got hit over the head by this thing and realized I need to really hunker down and better understand the monetary system at a, a more operational level, a more macro sort of big picture level. And that's where I, I wrote like a paper that a lot of people know me for called Understanding the Modern Monetary System. And I started writing a lot of research about quantitative easing. And I just, I got so deep in the weeds understanding how things work at an operational level around that point, just because of the way that all the policies were impacting everything so widely. Right. And so this paper you wrote here was in, uh, looks like August of 2011, which was a couple years after the dust had kind of settled there. Yeah. And you mentioned being able to kind of go back into the drawing board and rethink some of these things. Uh, that's why I also kind of start the question off with what you were doing in 08, because as you said, a lot of people had to kind of rethink their frameworks, and also it was an t- opportunity for people to kind of dust off the textbooks or go back and and kind of really understand how markets work and, and how macroeconomics basically plays out in real life and in, in markets. Yeah, totally. So that was kind of what, you know, what the core of that whole period for me was, was just a huge, huge learning period. And you know, with the market so out of control, I think a lot of us in finance were sort of grasping for for understandings of what was going to happen because in large part, because a lot of this stuff was so new. I mean, the U.S. had never done quantitative easing really in in scale or at least not in a modern form of any type. And so I think a lot of people were just trying to figure out, you know, these programs were so big. The government stimulus was so big. A banking crisis was actually pretty, pretty unusual, even, you know, in a modern era, or at least a financial crisis of that size. We really hadn't had a big financial panic like that in a long, long time. And so people were trying to figure out what was happening and what all this stuff was going to do. And I just, I think I had enough of a macro background that I was able to piece a lot of it together. And I actually, the thing that most people know me for, was around the 09, 08-09 period, I started writing the blog that I'm that I'm kind of known for, Pragmatic Capitalism. And I started writing about the way a lot of these things work. And so the paper came a little later, but the paper is basically just, it's an expansion on a whole bunch of blog posts that I wrote that had picked up a lot of traction because people, I mean, God, in 09, my website went from zero readership to, like a million monthly page views in six months, just because I was writing about a lot of the stuff at an operational level and describing 
how things work. And there was such a, a huge hunger to understand what was going on in the world at that time. Right. And up until 08, 09, uh, the Fed's balance sheet grew organically with open market operations and to around 800, 900 billion. And then a lot of people argue that, you know, they had to inject all that liquidity to kind of save the system. But then it, the balance sheet kept, you know, growing and then staying put for a while. Yeah. What do you, you know, let's talk about that and what, do you know, the good and the bad and what people get wrong about how the mechanism actually works. Yeah. So Q in your view. Yeah, QE at a at an operational level is actually pretty simple. The the Fed is just a big bank and banks can create assets from nothing just by expanding their balance sheet and purchasing things basically. So um when the Fed implements QE, they basically they create new reserves, which are deposits basically for banks. The banks use the Federal Reserve System, which is best thought of really as the banking system for the banks. So we use, the rest of us use the banking system and we have regular bank deposits that settle overnight. If you have, if you and I were to bank at the same bank and we settled a payment, our payment at the end of the day would settle in, in that bank's deposits. The banks all use the reserve system, the interbank market. And so the, the Fed helps them settle interbank payments basically using reserves. And so they use deposits that are issued by the Federal Reserve. And the part of that is is interest rate control and lots of sort of tangential things to the core function of the Fed, which is just make sure making sure the payment system works basically. But at an operational level, QE works in a fairly simple way in that the Fed creates new deposits and they they basically purchase treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities. And my argument has always been that what this really is in its cleanest form is just an asset swap. The Fed is basically creating a new deposit, which is just a really liquid government security. And in a, in a way, they're unprinting the T-bond, meaning that they're, they're buying the T-bond, but they're taking the T-bond out of the private sector economy. And I think this is the thing that a lot of people, I think, miss when they talk about QE is that they think of it as pure money printing, that it's just like a pure net financial asset creation. And, you know, it's not really true. I mean, if you and I were to create a loan from a bank, the bank not only has new assets and liabilities, but I also have assets and liabilities. And we are both entities that we operate in the private sector economy. We both we both compete for, you know, maybe employment or um, employing people or goods and services. The Fed doesn't do this. And so when the Fed takes a T-bond out of the private sector economy, what they're basically doing is they're putting that T-bond into like a black hole. I mean, the, the Fed's balance sheet is just this big nebulous black hole and they don't use it to employ people really in any meaningful sense. They don't use it to go to Walmart and buy goods and services. And so, yeah, they're creating a reserve, but in a sense, they're, they're unprinting the T-bond. And I've always argued that in a simplest sort of all else equal environment, that program is probably marginally deflationary because what it does is it actually removes interest income from the private sector by reducing the amount of interest income that's paid on the liability, on the government liability. So rather than paying 
you know, say 2% on a treasury bond, they're now paying, you know, the overnight rate on a reserve. And that actually reduces private sector income and just gives them a similarly safe asset. Yeah. And then I've heard it explained where the pain on interest on excess reserves actually helps control that inflation by the banks holding on to more of those reserves because they're actually earning a certain amount of interest. Is that, um, in your view, partially why the inflation, we haven't seen inflation as well? Not really. So that's okay. another thing at a, at a core level. Banks only lend reserves to other banks. And so what the Fed is trying to do when they pay interest on reserves, they're basically trying to get banks not to lend their reserves to other banks because that would put downward pressure on the overnight rate because the the Fed system is a closed system. So the banks in aggregate, they can't get rid of their reserves. The Fed sets a quantity and the banks can't really get rid of their reserves. And so if the right. Fed doesn't try to to set a price or a floor on the the excess reserve rate, then the banks will perpetually try to get rid of their reserves, which will put downward pressure on the overnight rate, which goes against what the Fed is trying to do. Because the Fed is really, I mean, especially when they're preparing to raise rates, they've got to do something to convince the banks not to lend these reserves. But the the kicker with inflation is that banks don't lend reserves to non-banks. They literally can't lend reserves to non-banks. And so the whole concept of a money multiplier and things like that, it's a little bit backwards in that banks, they actually make loans and then they find reserves if necessary. They, they usually settle up in the interbank market or they have to borrow from the Fed or something like that. Or the, the Fed has to basically supply the quantity that they're that they require the banks to have to be able to settle payments. And so, but the kicker is banks, banks tend to make loans first and then find reserves. So reserves don't constrain lending in the, the sort of like textbook manner that we all kind of learn in econ classes through the, the concept of the money multiplier. I see. And how about the argument that if the Fed doesn't, um, you know, unwind the balance sheet, by basically selling off the treasuries and MBS um, as opposed to all the buying they were doing to bring the balance sheet up, then, you know, some people argue if if they don't sell those securities back into the market, then essentially that was new money that was created. It's how do you look at that piece? There's I mean, there's some truth to that, I guess. I mean, when when QE you know, is implemented, they're creating what is technically new money. They're creating new deposits and they're unprinting the T-bond like I described before. The thing that's, I think, weird is that we don't really know what the inflationary difference between, I mean, funding government spending with a treasury bill, which is basically just a super short interest paying type of currency in essence, versus just issuing currency outright. And so far, I mean, it doesn't appear that there is a significant inflationary difference between the way that the government funds its spending, whether it does it through, I mean, whether they were to dump cash on the street or whether they were to issue treasury bonds or treasury bills to finance it all. It doesn't seem like there's a a big difference in the inflationary impact. I mean, I always describe it as like QE is a little bit like um having a savings account, which is basically what a treasury bond is, and then swapping it for a checking account, and then mm-hmm. somehow feeling like there's, you know, some inflationary impact from that. I mean, I just don't know, 
or I don't really think that people necessarily are going to spend more because they have a, a checking account all of a sudden that they swap with their savings account. In fact, I believe that because you're now you're earning a lower income from the checking account, I think you might be inclined to spend less. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the issue here is talking about like how the inflation actually gets into the marketplace. So I listen to a lot of Macro Voices podcasts and a recent one I heard was Dr. Lacey Hunt and he is coming at this from the same way you are. Basically talking about how the the reserves haven't don't get into the economy the way people think they do. And it's going to take like just outright money printing kind of the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy, or it's yeah. going to take actual checks to get to people and actually like the fed literally just printing money and giving it to people. Um, and as you mentioned, one of the issues that we've been grappling with on the podcast here is just the, the, nature of the Fed and the Treasury becoming more and more kind of into one entity. Yeah. Um, now, is that is that a concern that we should be watching out for? And then like looking at this SPV with the uh, with the junk debt, which I know you, you were critical of on a couple uh, different occasions as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's really crucial to understand the difference between fiscal and monetary policy, because I think. People tend to mix them together, and I think that it's a mistake to to put the cart before the horse because that's what a lot of people do with the Fed. They they assume that the Fed is the real money printing entity, and the I mean the real money printing entity is the Treasury. And the Treasury, when they run a deficit, they are creating what are basically net new financial assets for the private sector, and that's important because the the Treasury does buy goods and services. When they expand their balance sheet, they are going out and they're buying things and they're competing for our labor and things like that in a way that, you know, the Fed balance sheet expansions don't really do. And so the, you know, the kicker that I've been talking about in the last couple of months that I think a lot of people missed is that, yeah, the Fed's been doing a lot of these crazy lending programs, which are going to be mostly temporary. And the, 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 the QE programs and things like that are, you know, to me, they're just asset swaps. But the big, big bazooka that came down in March and April was the Treasury's uh, big deficit programs. I mean, they're going to run a mm-hmm. $4 trillion deficit this year, which is, I mean, that's four times bigger than what we ran in the financial crisis period. And so these numbers are, they're humongous. And that's where the real money printing has come from, if you want to call it that in that they're printing treasury bonds or bills, which are money-like assets that are, you know, net new financial assets for the, the private sector. And so that was just a huge, huge bazooka. And the a lot of the Fed's programs, they're stabilizing, but they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily permanent like so much government spending is. And that's the one of the big keys here is that so much of government spending ends up being permanent in that it, you know, the deficit will end up to a large degree being permanent based on the the assumption that the government continues to spend at a, a larger rate and that the, you know, if the economy remains even marginally weak, you'll you'll have fairly low tax revenues and you'll have a large deficit for probably many years to come coming out of this. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely a nuance there. And as you mentioned, kind of money-like instruments. So there's also a misconception and um, just kind of like a general misunderstanding because some this stuff can get really complex about the differences between treasury, both bills, bonds, and notes, and then bank reserves, and then even something like fiscal cash, like M2, where yeah, yeah, these these things are are similar, but they're they're actually very different in the way they affect things like inflation and, and markets. Is that right? Is, would you agree with that or? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, the, you know, a mainstream macro econ really treats, they treat money as something that is just completely different than everything else. And the money or deposits, these short-term, like, overnight type of instruments are supposed to be, you know, really liquid and potentially really inflationary. And I just think it's interesting to – I wrote in in that paper we mentioned earlier about how money is best thought of as being – existing on a scale of moneyness and that all these different instruments we use, they have money-like aspects to them. And so, you know, a cash bill is, is just pure money, but a, a treasury bill – is actually very, very money-like. And even things like, I mean, even a stock certificate to some degree has money-like aspects in that, I mean, a lot of employees get paid with stock. And so you can, you yeah. can have this scale of, of different financial assets and the, the moneyness of these things is not, it's not black and white. It's not this, this existence where you can just say, well, this thing is perfect money and this thing is perfectly not money. It just, it doesn't really work like that. And I think you see this with the inflation data over the last really decade or so where financing government spending with bonds versus, you know, what people call monetizing the debt doesn't really seem to create the high inflation that you might have thought if you were, you know, working from this monetarist type of perspective where the short duration money like things are likely to be inflationary. Yeah, and you've talked in the past about how the QE itself doesn't make stock markets go up or risk assets go up. And I think, um, you know, as you point out, you pointed out as well in the past that the Fed stopped doing QE in 2015 and then stocks kept going up for yeah. another five years. Now, I think, you know, the way some people approach this argument is, okay, when, when you bring rates to zero, uh, people have to go out on the risk curve and then therefore they're bidding up risk assets. And I've heard this argument many times. I just heard it actually this morning on Bloomberg TV with uh, Rick Reeder from BlackRock, actually. Um, and But I've heard it many times before. Um, and then so I think, you know, there's some people say, well, there's a nuance there because it's not the actual QE that's making markets go up. Some, the other side of the coin is some people actually point to QE as like liquidity going into the system. Yeah. Making markets go up. But then, but then they say, well, we, we can't explain why, but it just is. How do you, what do you think about that whole argument? To me, I just, I actually used to think this was true. I used to, when I wrote some of my early research on quantitative easing, I thought it would have this behavioral impact that it would make commodity prices go up, that the, the very idea of printing money would be enough to sort of convince the markets that there was going to be inflation. Um, mm-hmm. and 
a lot of that turned out to be wrong. Like I thought commodity prices might go up after QE and, and that just turned out to be wrong. And I, so I revisited it over the years and kind of tried to figure out, you know, why, why are commodity prices at, you know, 20 year lows right now? I mean, if these things, if these programs make asset prices go up, then the evidence seems to be somewhat thin. I mean, even looking at like the global stock market, I mean, Japan has been doing QE for 20 years and their stock market hasn't performed that great over that period. The Europeans have been doing QE for the last 10 years and in the last five or six years, their stock market hasn't really done anything. Um, so it, even in the U.S., you know, it seems to be the, the U.S. market has been, the performance have been so dominated by basically a bunch of big tech companies that, you know, what does QE do? Does it only make tech companies go up in value? I mean, it just, to me, there seems to be this, this underlying assumption that the market is just hyper, hyper inefficient. If we're all just running around bidding up assets based on what the Fed is doing and nothing else. I mean, it's kind of reminds me of a little bit of the, um, the argument that buybacks necessarily make stock prices go up. And that to me is just a, it's a hyper, hyper inefficiency assumption of the, the way that markets function. I mean, if, if a company is implementing a buyback and the corporation's fundamentals are just deteriorating, then is the stock price really going to rise? I mean, the the clear evidence is no, that that's not what happens. I mean, you see it this time and time again with companies like like Dell was doing huge buybacks and their operations were failing and the stock price just kept going down, down, down. And I kind of think of the, the macro economy in the same sense that if corporate profits are falling and corporations are doing worse on a fundamental basis, but you're implementing QE, then are people really so irrational that they're going to continue to to value these firms at a very high multiple and they're going to you know bid these assets up based on just liquidity and nothing else i just i i mean i don't believe that markets are are perfectly efficient or anything like that but to me it just doesn't seem believable if corporate america starts to fail and perform really poorly, sort of in the same way that like corporate Japan did in the the 90s, I think stock prices are going to go down regardless of what the Fed does. Yeah, you bring up a good point with the buyback. So I think the way some people view it, at least I've heard, is a very simplified, a very, very simplified model where they're saying, okay, the corporation is going in and, and buying back their own shares and they are – Therefore, there's less shares outstanding and therefore the price of the, the other shares outstanding in the marketplace will go up. But the way you're describing it is that's just way too simplified of a model. And there's yeah. other, all these externalities and other factors that are at play. In fact, there could be hundreds and hundreds of other factors. Exactly. It's not, right. it's not the core defining feature. I mean, the, the thing that will determine whether a stock price should go up or down in the long term is really the core underlying fundamentals. I mean, for instance, like people never talk about Apple and how Apple has been doing the largest buybacks of anyone by a huge margin over the last 10 years. But the kicker with Apple is Apple's operations have gone up. So they haven't been manipulating their stock price. They've Apple just literally has performed so well at an operational level that they have so much cash coming out of their ears that they don't even know what to do with it. So they're just, they're buying back stock because they almost don't even know how else to invest it. And 
that to me is so much more important than, I mean, if they were just buying back stock and their operations were failing and let's say, let's say Microsoft was eating their lunch in every realm of, of their operations. I think that Apple stock would fall regardless of what they were doing with their buybacks. Yeah. And let's touch on the inflation aspect, which we touched on a minute ago, but you've talked in the past how the fed doesn't manipulate rates. They just kind of chase inflation around. Yeah. And, um, you know, so and inflation is, I don't know if that's even a term that's even worth kind of uh, diving into too much as far as it's kind of a loaded term where it means so many different things. And it's it's almost kind of a buzzword at this point in a way. But um, when you look at the way the Fed measures inflation, there's some issues there with uh, taking out food and energy. And then we've had this you touched on earlier, we've had this kind of dispersion where we have all these forces pulling down um, its prices as far as these deflationary forces. Like you mentioned, Japan and Europe, a lot of it is demographics, but a lot of it is also technology where the iPhone is, you know, replacing 10 or 15 other items that you don't need anymore. Yeah. You know, more progress, more technology. Most people know this story. But then when you look at, you know, housing prices and really hot markets or, or rentals, you can look at some, some food and some other things, college tuition. You, we see in healthcare, we see some things are off the charts, but I guess the argument would be it's something more structural, structural in nature where there's regulations having the healthcare system be uh, kind of perverted in that way. But how do you actually look at inflation? Like, do you think we, we have had inflation and the Fed isn't measuring it right? Or do you, do you believe in more of the deflationary side? You mentioned the commodity prices is the one thing people point at. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to to know just because we don't know the counterfactual. I mean, if I, I think if the government hadn't done anything, for instance, in the last few months or if they hadn't done anything in 2008, I think we would have had much deeper downturns than we did. We would have had much, much deeper deflationary impacts than we did. And so, you know, it's hard to measure this stuff just because we don't know the counterfactual. So we're just looking at you know, what did happen. And we kind of know, I mean, things like QE didn't create high inflation, which is, you know, it's interesting for the reasons that you mentioned in that, and this is sort of similar to the, you know, the discussion we were just having about buybacks and how other elements, these externalities are more important because I agree with you that I think the externalities to what the government has been doing are actually much more impactful on the price trends than, than most other things. I mean, the big trends we're seeing really around the world is like demographics are hugely deflationary or at least somewhat disinflationary, which means basically a, a falling rate of inflation. Um, and then you've got the tech trends and you've got the government responses have been really significant, but these are, these are just gigantic macro price headwinds that, you know, you can't print more people. And so no matter what the government is trying yeah. to do, you know, they're trying to offset these, these just huge colossal program or these huge colossal macro trends that we've been seeing. And, you know, Japan is such a good playbook in so many, in so many ways because the, you know, we've seen that they, they've tried so hard. They're running 300% debt to GDP or something like that. They've been doing QE for 20 years and they just have a, a, a horrible, 
deflationary demographic trend combined with a very productive technologically based economy that those two big headwinds for prices are so significant that the government just hasn't even been able to offset it to a large degree. And and so those two factors to me are just they're more important than what the government has been doing. So it'll be interesting seeing what happens coming out of this thing. I mean, seeing I'm assuming that the assuming the virus kind of starts to dissipate to some degree. But if the economy recovers and we're running four trillion dollar deficits for the next year or two, it'll be interesting to see how inflationary that is, because I assume that it'll be certainly more inflationary than than the, the 08, 09 period. Um, but I don't think anyone really knows, you know, how will the those all those big macro uh, events kind of counterbalance each other. Mm-hmm. And that could be due more inflation in the future could be due to more fiscal policy instead of maybe the monetary policy that we were having in the past. Or, or That's my sorry. view. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, and and maybe both firing at the same time, even that yeah, some people argue. Now, and you've talked in the past a little bit about how some of these conversations are more political, really in nature, instead of talking just kind of solely about markets. People politicize certain things, and we definitely have done that on the show here too. Um, so I guess, but we, I haven't really thought of it that way in the sense of it should be separated. Um, now, like one example I can think of is just the Swiss bank, uh, buying a Switzerland, Switzerland central bank buying Apple stock, GE, Disney, and then you have like the, the way the Federal Reserve here in the U.S. is set up with, you know, the member banks are, it's kind of a quasi public private entity and they get the 6% fixed dividend. Do you think there's, the information and the conversation gets clouded by having it be too politicized? And what's your views there? Yeah. I mean, the feds are really, I mean, central banks are just really complex entities. Cause I mean, here's the thing. We have a big financial system that is based around banks and we all use banks and we settle our payments with banks. And right. the thing that I think a lot of people miss with central banks is that banks, private banks, do not operate very efficiently in times of crises. So like in 2008 in particular, or going back through history, 1907 and 1929, the private banking system tends to shut down. And so the the payments don't clear, which causes all these knock-on effects in other parts of the economy that is sort of unnecessarily disruptive. Like you and I should be able to settle a payment regardless of what is happening with Bank of America or JP Morgan. I mean, their, their fear of each other shouldn't dictate whether or not we're able to operate economically. But that's what happens in periods like 2008. Bank of America literally gets scared of JP Morgan being good on their ability to clear a payment and they don't clear the payments at the interbank system. And, What the Fed does at a very basic operational level is the Fed steps in and basically says, look, none of that's important. We're we're going to make sure that these payments clear, regardless of how crappy J.P. Morgan and Bank of America's balance sheets are. And so the the Fed is trying to operate as a public entity, sort of leveraging, you know, the the public's uh, balance sheet to some degree. 
and maintain this private banking system to a large degree, which in my opinion, private banking is mostly good. I mean, it's the alternative is what to have, you know, like the Fed issuing all the loans to be issuing all the mortgage underwriting and things like that, which I I worry about. I think that would be potentially disastrous to have the government and a bunch of bureaucrats deciding who would be, you know, getting loans and who wouldn't be and trying to do the underwriting and the credit checks and things like that. Because I just think profitable, profit based entities, I think, are, are more likely to be, you know, scrutinizing in a way that the government probably isn't likely to be. But you have this weird environments like 2008 where this private system, although it's good, you know, 95% of the time, that 5% of the time, it's really, really bad. And the Fed just needs to step in in those environments because they need to stabilize the banking system to some degree. And so it's hard. I mean, people politicize it because these events are so big. They're so important. They're so damaging that it's hard to look at the government stepping in in a big way and, you know, not criticizing it. But at the same time, you know, I don't know what the alternative is. The alternative is to have the Fed issuing all the loans and being basically the nation's bank during the other 95% of the time, which I think would just kind of create a, you know, arguably a more disastrous set of scenarios. Yeah, and you have a great blog here on, um, or sorry, a great post on your blog here, Common Myths About the Federal Reserve, and in it here you're talking about the cent- uh, central bank, the Fed being a clearinghouse, and as you mentioned, I, I think the argument there too is just the private sector is so intermingled already where you know, we use banks, we have Chase, B of A, Wells Fargo, all the big ones are, are you know, you can argue if they're too big to fail, but they uh, – We're just so dependent on them, and you know that's how paychecks work, and that's how businesses function. And the Fed is is there to clear payments. Um, I think where it gets a little bit sticky, as you mentioned, is you know it it works as this public-private entity. So you can look at the 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 good part, which is kind of the public side of the clearinghouse, and that's how ACH works and everything. And then you have this other side where these banks, you know, do own shares and they get this fixed dividend, but you know, that they have to almost do that in order to provide liquidity. So it's this weird system that's set up, but it's, we can't really undo it now because we're already in it. You also bring up a point in the blog about there's a myth that the Fed isn't audited, which it is. I think the sticking point there too is just the lack of transparency that comes out and we have to wait a long time for the minutes. Yeah. The way I've, the way I've heard it explained on the other side is that, okay, it will be completely disastrous. Let's say if we had like live video feeds of every meeting, right. what, would, what would that do to markets? So I don't know. I guess, I guess it's just finding a common ground. I think a lot of that's fair. I mean, a lot of the criticism of the Fed is, is fair. I mean, like I, I'm weirdly, you know, a lot of people think I'm a Fed apologist and I'm really not. I'm really a Fed critic in that I basically just think the Fed is this big clearinghouse that they do a lot of tangential things that are very involved in the economy that I tend to not think are as impactful as people think. Like QE is such a great example. I mean, you have a four or five trillion dollar balance sheet expansion in the last 10 years. I don't think this asset swapping program has done very much. And so my argument basically is like, okay, yeah, they're a big important clearinghouse and, you know, they've, they've set interest rates at, you know, whatever, zero or 1% for a decade. 
which we can argue about whether or not that's manipulating or is it just chasing inflation. I tend to think they're just kind of chasing inflation and trying to, you know, predict something about the future that they can't really predict. Um, and then you have QE, which is this humongous program that seems like such a big, colossal intervention in the economy that in my mind is just really, it's swapping a safe asset for a safe asset and, and blowing things out of proportion to try to convince people that, you know, the government is here to do something that, you know, they're really not able to control, which is, that's ultimately what they're, they're trying to do is control inflation to some degree. And I think that the low inflation of today is, is largely evidence that the Fed, despite having done all these great big programs, they've failed to create inflation. They're trying their hardest to create inflation. And they just can't. So, yeah, we've talked about in the past having the Treasury and having the fiscal side kick in because they're kind of not out of bullets, I'll say, but, you know, they're kind of at their restriction point to what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're I don't know. The the recent, you know, programs are they're they're larger than a lot of what we did during the crisis. And Jerome Powell was on 60 Minutes, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, basically saying that, you know, the Fed, the Fed's authority is unlimited to do, you know, whatever they want to. And, you know, the, there's been a lot of controversy over that and the, the exigent circumstances clause in the Federal Reserve Act that it's so open-ended and so kind of loosely worded that, I mean, technically, they do kind of have this crazy amount of authority that that gives them the yeah. ability to do virtually anything. Yeah, and I think the important point there is, in a way, it's almost good. Now, a lot of listeners will be, you know, cringing right now, maybe, but to be able to provide that, you know, emergency stimulus or to be able to like really come in and really be that lender of last resort. Now on the other side of that coin, obviously is that power has to be used so sparingly right. as well, because you know, that could, could lead down a road where uh, who knows where that would That's go. That's where I think a lot of the criticisms are totally warranted that the fed does a lot of these things in such a huge scale without congressional authority that, you know, a lot of it is arguably, you know, like a lot of the lending programs are arguably um, a form of fiscal policy in some sense that they're so big and they're picking winners and losers that, you know, I understand a lot of the the controversy around it. And I'm not saying that these things are all necessarily good or or bad, Um yeah, I actually know a couple people personally who their businesses were, you know, saved by the program that's out there and uh, they're able to keep the payroll online and it actually really helped them. This was a small to medium sized business. And then you hear the, the stories where it's, yeah, some of these companies took money and they shouldn't have and journalists exposed right. it and they, and they gave the money back. So it's, you know, you hear both sides, but like you said, there's a lot of good. That yeah. And some of, of these programs, like I think. Like they're buying like high yield bonds and stuff on the secondary markets. I think that stuff is just a big waste of time. I mean, they're buying secondary market securities to me is like, it's like buying a horse ticket at a, at a horse race and thinking that your, your purchase of this secondary ticket, secondary market ticket is going to change the way the horse runs. It's just, it's not really the way it works. You know, the, Corporations don't care who owns their stock, really. They don't care whether or not you, you and I are trading 
their stock. And so the Fed going in and buying these things is, to me, it's they're kind of they are kind of overstepping their authority in that sense. And and they're doing things that aren't that effective that make them, you know, look controversial unnecessarily. Yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of wrapping this conversation up that a lot of guests we've had on the show have talked about, you know, we've had some mixed views. Some people really do believe the QE is, is going to cause inflation, but haven't yet. Some people believe that the fiscal side is the only thing that will do it, which is slowly starting to happen. And some people think we need both to fire all, yeah. fire on all cylinders. So we'll, we'll have to see that play out and it will likely take years, but let's transition a little over into uh, you and your wealth management practice and kind of you know, what you do and how you take a different approach to things. Yeah. I mean, my business has just completely transformed in the last 10 years and that now I basically run a, I run a very low fee indexing style, uh, portfolio management service that, um, it, it's really focused on trying to help people control their own behavior. And so, I run a, a strategy that's basically called counter cyclical indexing and it's a very low fee sort of tax efficient approach to mostly managing the fixed income portion or a more conservative type of approach that, that has an equity slice to it. So, but what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm rebalancing portfolios in a manner that is really more consistent with people's behavior and that typically what I'm doing is, you know, to use a kind of Simple example. Let's say you had a, a 50 50 stock bond portfolio. The way that Vanguard would rebalance that portfolio over time is in a year like 2019, that portfolio, the stock piece goes up 30%. So let's say it grows to 70 30 or something like that. Vanguard would just rebalance that portfolio back to 50 50. And the, the way that I've discovered with working with people directly is that they tend, people tend to sort of intuitively understand that the stock piece in that portfolio potentially became riskier when it grew into a 70. And so rather than rebalancing back to 50, which is would in a lot of environments be the new 50 is, is now riskier than your original 50, I actually try to quantify that. And so accounting for people's behavior and their, un, their sort of intuitive understanding that their new 50 is riskier, you come into a year like 2020 where – my portfolios are maybe they're 30, 70 stock bonds or they're 40, 60 stock bonds. So we've rebalanced rather than rebalancing back to that 50, 50, we've actually rebalanced, rebalanced further in the opposite direction. And my argument is that what you're really doing there is you're better controlling for potential behavioral risks by better aligning yourself, not only with market valuations, but the, the potential that after big booms, you tend to have the potential for these big busts that we've seen in periods like, you know, 2001 or uh, 2008 or, or this year where you've had a big bust coming off of a, a big boom. And it's weird now we're kind of back to arguably this overpriced, you know, really risky stock market that um, almost puts us right back to where we were coming into the year. Yeah, that's a really nuanced take on things because a lot of people, you know, we've swung, swung to this whole pendulum side of indexing away from active management. And then some people argue we're going to swing to that other side, but there's more and more people doing 
different strategies and different type of asset management where, where there's a more nuanced take, whether it's trend following, whether it's kind of a hybrid approach. Yeah. And I think the way you described it, that, that kind of makes sense instead of just taking like a one single side of yeah, the problem well, or the other. I, is that right? I, I've written a lot about how I basically think passive investing isn't really a thing. I mean, that basically mm-hmm. at a, at a core level, everyone is an active investor to some degree. We all, we all have to be active. We all have to take distributions from our portfolio. We all market time to some degree because we, we have lump sums that come into the market. We have new, you know, cash contributions that go into the market. And, you know, all these things are, we rebalance, we get dividends that we maybe reinvest, things like that. All of these things are active by definition. And so nobody can be just this purely passive index like the S&P 500 index is. We have to be active to some degree. And my argument is that, yeah, we know taxes and fees are really important, but we also know that we have to be active to some degree. And my argument basically is that there are smart ways to be active and there are stupid ways to be active and that – you know, the more tax and fee efficient you can be and the better you can control for your behavior, the better your personal performance will be in the long run. And if that involves a little bit of activity, then so be it. If activity helps you actually perform better than a counterfactual, then a little activity isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it might arguably be a good thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, this has been great. And why don't you tell people a little bit about where they can find you? We're going to link your blog in the show notes. We're going to link your book if anyone's interested from Amazon, as well as a couple of your papers. Uh, but why don't you just give a quick shout out? Yeah. Uh, the website that I, I run is uh, called Pragmatic Capitalism. I've published a ton of material over the last 10 years there. So if you, if you found me boring on the podcast, you'll find my blog posts really boring because um, they're much more in-depth, much more detailed. Um, but my book is also called Pragmatic Capitalism. And, um, and yeah, those are the two best places to follow me probably. Well, this was great. I'm also going to link – there's a blog post that you made about your predictions, which I was going through uh, here real fast, and there's some really interesting ones. So I, I don't think people are going to find this one boring at all, actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that was, that was a really interesting blog post. So Colin, we really appreciate your time and and thanks a lot. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.